0: My name is Sarah Dudnitz and you're listening to PR Hangover, a public relations podcast brought to you by Grand Valley State University's PRSSA chapter. So we will go ahead and get started. I'm here with Jason Manshum. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little about yourself.
1: Sure, Sarah. Thanks for having me uh, today. Uh, I have worked for the last uh, 20 or so years in Public Relations, Public Affairs. Uh, started out right here in Allendale at Grand Valley's campus with an undergrad degree in, in health communication. And then later, subsequently, I, I finished uh, grad school here at the downtown campus as well uh, with an MS in communications. When I talk about my career, I use a sports analogy. I put it in two halves, okay? Mm-hmm. The first half of my career, first second quarter, if you will, um, was all health communications. Uh, very early on, um, I got my start working in the payer side of healthcare, so on the insurance side, working at Priority Health, in the corporate communications team, and you know that is where I really learned the trade. I did a little bit of everything there, um, and I got a taste of enough to know the things that I really liked to do and the things that I didn't like to do as much, but it was a wonderful experience, and the key to that really for me was I worked for a great mentor, who's still a mentor to this day, you know, uh, all these years later. From there, you know, I went to the provider side in healthcare and worked in a hospital setting uh, for Bronson Methodist Hospital. Um, I was their primary media person there. I worked there for several years. And then the second half of my career started after, we'll call it halftime. Uh, <laughs> and the second half went down a slightly different path. And it went down a path not so much of traditional public relations, and where I'm working on a lot of tactical things like maybe a grand opening of a building, a ribbon cutting or the groundbreaking. Maybe not so much that I'm pitching um, feature stories to the health beat writer, um, but more um, down the road of public affairs, Um, issues management, uh, crisis communication, working on campaign type issues versus project-based. And that all got started in the second half with an incident that the state of Michigan with an environmental disaster back in the summer of 2010. So if you go back in the memory bank, you'll know that that summer brought here to, to South Michigan the nation's worst inland oil spill that we've ever had. A pipeline burst near a small stream that was a tributary of the Kalamazoo River Subsequently, crude oil uh, polluted about 35 river miles um, through the Battle Creek community into Kalamazoo. So at the time that happened, um, again, I happened to be looking for something new. And I heard about the job through uh, word of mouth, actually, through a a peer of mine. Um, That was a job that wasn't posted. And that was a a position that was newly created because of the natural or, or the environmental disaster. Um, and they were looking for somebody local, a Michigan person. You know, this is an international company, but they didn't want somebody from Canada to be uprooted here. They didn't want somebody from Texas. They wanted someone who really knew uh, the political climate here and who the key stakeholders were you know, to help, you know, repair relationship damages that had now occurred. So I went to work for them, and that was Enbridge Energy, um, and I worked there for most of this last decade. Um, I was the primary public affairs person and public information officer of PIL for the remediation of the river during that project, um, while leading a team of about five public affairs professionals staffed around the United States at various places. And then as, as that project wound down, the issue at the Straits of Mackinac that's still going on today, which is Uh, the Line 5 pipeline that traverses from the St. Ignace side down to the Mackinac City side, uh, that became my baby. So I was working very hard and diligently on the issues for that. Uh, But then in 2017, Nestle Waters uh, recruited me. Um, They were um, seeking uh, some community relations, public affairs help too, in particular, Um, to garner approval from the state of Michigan to withdraw more water for their Ice Mountain uh, brand of water. And also with the water crisis that had just um, gone public with Flint. Mm -hmm. They were looking at ways they could build relationships on that side of the state and in that community to help residents get through um, that crisis. And so they recruited me and I took the job um, there in 2017. And so for the last couple of years, I've been working a lot on, on permitting um, with the state for water, but also with the Flint water crisis. So if you look at the last 10 years of my career, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. I have taken some, <laughs> some crises in the state um, that actually are all on the environmental side and specifically on water issues in the state and worked for organizations um, you, you know, to, to try to either mitigate potential risk or issues, or work on more of the um, advocacy side. Uh, really, the only issue that I haven't worked on yet, knock on wood, that's water-related in the state is PFAS. But you never mm-hmm. know, we, we have, we have yeah, that going yeah. on yeah. now, so. And that's fairly local too. It, it is, and, it, and it's relatively um, new as far as mm-hmm. being on people's radar. So that's really been you know the second half, although I just started this month um, teaching here at Grand Valley as an adjunct. Mm-hmm. I'm now teaching a course um, that I took 23 years ago this semester um, as an undergrad, and it's CAP 321 uh, Media Relations Writing. So two weeks in, I am having a ball teaching that. That is a lot of fun.
0: Awesome, glad to hear that. Um, It is interesting too, how a lot of the projects that you've worked on you said, are all around water. And if you live in Michigan, if you know that water is our pride and joy and it is our baby. So that is really interesting. Um, moving on, what made you interested in public relations, first of all, and then specifically crisis communications?
1: You know, I was a, if I back up to when I was in like middle school, high school, public relations was not on my radar. I didn't even know what that was, <laughs> um, to be honest. At the time, I mean, like a lot of kids, you know, you you think you want to grow up and you want to be an athlete. Mm-hmm. Well, the odds of that of being a professional aren't good. So I decided uh, at a very young age, I wanted to get into landscape architecture. Specifically, I wanted to design golf courses. I'm an avid golfer. That's what I wanted to do. Very unique. <laughs> but then as I got older, as I, you know, 16 turned into 17, and that turned into 18, and you start looking at colleges and applying to different schools, I wasn't sure at the time if the design work and sitting at a, I'm going to date myself here, a drafting table or maybe later like a CAD computer designing. I didn't know if that was really something I'd want to do for the next, you know, 40 plus years. What I started to realize though, as I was transitioning from high school to college is being very much an extrovert and a people person, I'm all about relationships. And I learned very quickly in life that a lot of Life lessons and opportunities that you get are forged in relationships. Not even skill set necessarily, it's relationships. So I kind of wandered down that road and sort of think about just communications in general. Um, and so I selected uh, Grand Valley in part because of the School of Communications here. And then after I got started in the curriculum, I decided healthcare. So HealthCom, specifically at the time because I thought. You know, there's always a need for health care, so there's always going to be a job there, right? And as the population ages and as you know, um, we try to live healthier, longer, but combating all kinds of diseases from cancers and, and, and such, I just knew that the role I would play, even though it may be small, could have a positive impact on somebody's life, which is why I chose specifically HealthCom. Um, as far as crisis, though, honestly, I didn't find crisis. I wasn't looking for crisis. Crisis <laughs> found me in the form of you know the um, oil spill in the Kalamazoo River. I mean, had it not been for that, Enbridge would not have been hiring. I wouldn't have gone to work there. So who knows where my career would be today, you know, if, if that wouldn't have happened. so I I hate to phrase it that way, but really it it, it was an environmental disaster that put me down the path of focusing on public affairs with issues management and crisis communication. Mm -hmm. So I like to say it found me.
0: (laughs) Funny how that works sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that you've been working sort of in the crisis communications field for a while, what are some of the most important aspects of it or the most important traits that you need in a job like this?
1: Um, again, I mentioned this earlier, when you think about public relations, my emphasis is always on the R in PR. It's relations, relationships. Um, whenever there is a crisis or a disaster, an emergency of any, any sort, the way in which it, it will be perceived by your publics, in large part, can be dictated by the relationships that you have forged ahead of time. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, this position that I took for Enbridge, you know, it was new. They didn't have anybody doing it, and so very few people in this entire state, myself included, even knew that there were pipelines in the area, let alone that they carried crude oil or other products like natural gas liquids. So when it occurred, there were no relationships here around the state from, you know, from a public affairs or public relations perspective. So you're starting at ground zero, but, Really, it's below that because for all of those stakeholders, the very first time they ever heard of Enbridge was after they had spilled nearly a million gallons of oil into the river system. So imagine me trying to start a relationship with you. I've identified you as a key pivotal stakeholder. I come in to meet with you. And the only thing you know about the company I work for you is that we just contaminated 35 river miles and have impacted people's homes, their businesses, their recreation. So I'm already way, way, way behind the eight ball here and I'm already not well received, not because of me personally, but because of who I work for right now and what the company just did, right? So in um, regardless of the cause, Enbridge was the responsible part. It's their responsibility to know and maintain those lines, right, but if there is an incident in this case, it's their responsibility to fix it, not just fix the pipeline, but then fix whatever damage has been caused in those communities. And so that's really the, the single biggest thing I can say. Ideally, you work on those relationships. If you don't work on relationships until you need them, you know, for your benefit, it won't work. I mean, go back to the traditional definition of PR, right? It's mutually beneficial relationships. If I haven't built a relationship with you until I need you, because now I just spilled oil in this case, right? And so now I need that relationship. That's the wrong way to start. And unfortunately, that's just the way the cards were dealt. And so I, I had to start you know, from that level and slowly work my way or claw my way up from there. But again, it's a relationship, relationship, relationship.
0: I think the biggest thing I've learned from all of my podcast guests this year is form those relationships before you need them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've talked a little bit about some of the scenarios and the cases you've worked in. Could you walk us through a crisis that you've dealt with sort of from beginning to end and what it looked like from a PR perspective?
1: So using the Kalamazoo River, Mm -hmm. um, which again, nation's worst inland oil spill, You know, when I actually walked in the door, it was probably... Uh, It would have been about two months, two and a half months after the actual spill occurred. So, I'm coming in from healthcare, that's all I've known at that point. So I'm coming into a brand new industry for the first time, which I I knew nothing Mm -hmm. about the energy industry, particularly the movement of fossil fuels. So I have to learn that, and fast. Um, I also have to learn about the actual accident. What happened? What caused it? What are we doing right now to clean it up? what are the steps involved, and I have absolutely zero timeline because they're still in emergency response. And at this point, the responsible party is doing cleanup under the direction of the federal government or the United States Environmental Protection Agency. They're the regulator on the case. There's also state regulators, and that was the then DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality. Then you have local and state officials involved too, like your... um, like your community health officers or your county health officers. So I'm now um, using all of them as my stakeholders and we're being directed as a responsible party on how to be cleaned up while at the same time answering so many questions from the community and trying to listen to people's concerns and handling people who are angry and who want to, you know, do harm to the company that harmed the river. I mean, it was a really intense situation. The key, though, was everything was structured. Um, after 9 11, uh, the federal government instituted a response system that would be structured in uniform no matter what the incident was. And, and this really guides you on how you can respond. So, if the emergency was, in this case, an oil spill, if there is a hurricane that just devastated the coastline, if there is a you know a terrorist event again, this allows you know the federal government to come in, state, local players, and responsible parties and have a unified, organized response. Mm-hmm. And it's through it's through the NIM system and, and it's called incident command uh, structure, ICS. And so in that role, I I really played two things. I played public information officer on behalf of Enbridge but I was also the liaison officer, which involved um, working with a lot of outside stakeholders from um, government leaders to community uh, stakeholders, other key influencers, and it's all structured. I mean, there, I am actually now certified in the incident command system at the one, two, three, and 400 level for public information, it's much like college courses. There's mm-hmm. there's, there's 400 levels of it. Um, You have daily briefings, daily meetings, um, operations, planning, logistics, communications, which is my area. Um, You have to give out briefings to the incident commanders. The incident commanders are leading cleanup, and they're from, again, the the regulators and the responsible party. Um, You know, and, and your job is to, again, be that liaison between the incident command structure, those parties, and the public. And then, at the same time, I'm working with public affairs professionals from all of those agencies. And we have our own group. um, We call it the the MAC, the Multi-Agency Committee. And it's all of the communications professionals from those agencies working together. challenging part there, too, is not only do you have to get out information quickly and timely, and you're answering to all kinds of people from the different agencies. In that situation, not all the parties, agree or concur with the way things that should be done, right? So you might have responsible party wanting to do A, B, and C. The regulators say, no, you need to do X, Y, and Z. But at the end of the day, everything has to come together. Hence, it's called unified command. And that was a a significant challenge. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, while that's going on in, in crisis communications, the other arm of PR is your community outreach. So Enbridge had opened up two community centers in two different towns along the Kalamazoo River that originally were open seven days a week and most of the day, like 12 plus hour days where people could come in and ask questions, uh, file claims, you know, if there's damage on their property, things of that nature. Um, And those centers I had to manage as well. And we brought in claims professionals from all over the country to address this for us. So we brought in our own staff to help answer questions. And I was managing those two community centers. At the same time, I was involved with all of the agencies and the debriefing, getting helicopter tours daily of the river, um, getting boat tours. Um, Yeah, it it was intense. And under this whole timeline, you know, we have certain target dates that we have to hit for cleanup. That's again, set by the federal government. And if you don't hit that date, to be honest it doesn't matter why you didn't hit the date even if there's a valid reason you didn't hit the date
2: mm-hmm.
1: so now you gotta tack on more fines to that and then the, what does that do well then that adds to the negative public perception of the organization mm-hmm. so as you can see when you're sitting in this role there's all kinds of glass balls that you're juggling and you can't drop any of them not one because it'll have a domino effect a cascading effect and so yeah it's intense um,
0: Sounds like five different jobs. It, it really <laughs> was. And you
1: know, it's a situation too where I couldn't even take a day off. Right. If I wanted to, I'd have to have somebody fill in for me in PIO role. So whether it's another employee, whether it's a consultant that we bring in for the day, um, I'd have to get that person up to speed ahead of time. Um, and then you can imagine the media scrutiny too. I mean, the, we had um, a kind of a war room for us and, and who we were working in communications. and. We had a dedicated phone line just for media. The phone is ringing constantly uh, throughout the day with media requests for interviews. They wanted to get access to the river. They wanted to be on the water. Um, they wanted to talk to executives here and it was it was intense and non-stop. And that lasted really um, for about four to five years before that project really ended. Uh, so we, you know you get through it but the key was also we had a plan, right? Everybody talks about a communications plan, a crisis plan. Um, what that allowed, I think, Enbridge to do is they took a look at the one that, that, that we had and said, okay, now, how do we make this better? And that's the other key takeaway. When you're in a job where you may or may not be involved in a crisis, you have to have the plan, right? But if you design the plan, create it, set it on the shelf or, you know, tuck it in your, your hard drive somewhere, and then you never look at it again, you're hurting yourself. It should be reviewed annually, if not more often, always reviewed. And then beyond reviewing it, you need to practice. You need to do drills. So the takeaway for us, after this incident would wind down, we would run drills, emergency drills. We'd replicate other oil spills at other places or similar type disasters. And we would drill how we would respond. Sometimes the drills were small. We'd call them tabletop or we'd sit around in a room much like the one we're in uh, here today, and we would role play around the tabletop with our, with our guidebooks in front of us. Other times they're full-fledged exercises where we're actually on a river or on a lake. And we've got teams of people deploying boom to pr- stop to pretend oil, right? We've got helicopters going in there. We've got the US EPA practicing with us. The state of Michigan is there, the police department, the you know, state police, county health officials. And it's a huge, sometimes multi-day event. You have to continuously practice how you respond you know, as an organization, particularly from this you know, reputation standpoint. And then at the end, we always call it a hot wash, which is essentially you get together and say, okay, what worked really, really well and what didn't work? What, how can we make this better for the real thing should it ever happen? And, and that really is kind of a day in the life of crisis <laughs> comms.
0: That is incredible just sitting here thinking about it. You did say one thing. Um, when you're working with all these different publics and these different audiences, some of them are angry, some of Mm -hmm. them if there was any trust between you guys, it's gone now Mm -hmm. Um, to use a personal example, I work for Grand Valley's Alumni Association and recently, I'm sure you remember when Grand Valley Student Senate decided Mm -hmm. that they weren't going to say the pledge at the beginning of their meetings, Um, a lot of alumni a lot of sort of my audience um, that sort of they sort of took their response to us um, and they were not happy they were they were very angry and it i know from experience now that dealing with an angry audience is not an easy thing to do especially when you're not directly responsible for what happened what how do you formulate an apology a, a message to people who are really angry with you what's that like
1: it's not easy. <laughs> I'll say that. That's true. You know, when it comes to something like you know, what you dealt with there, um, with the Senate, or what I was dealing with there in the Kalamazoo River, and then later at the Straits of Mackinac, I mean, these are very emotional issues for people. And they're passionate about it. You know, in my case, we're talking about water. This is the Great Lakes state. We're surrounded by water everywhere, whether it's the Great Lakes, whether it's inland lakes, river streams. It's our identity. Like, it is, is our I- is, identity. Yeah. That's pure Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so people do get angry if there either actually was something that negatively impacted the water or if there's even a threat that something could impact mm-hmm. our waterway, our way of life, our recreation, our tourism. And rightfully so. Everybody should work together to protect the waterways in the state. So now in a case like this where there's something tangible that's actually happened, we're not talking about fear that something could happen. We're actually showing that something did. A pipeline burst and a million gallons of crude oil spilled into a waterway system. Now people are really, and and rightfully so, upset. So, uh, you know, you can't fix it overnight. Just like you can't rebuild trust overnight. You can't alleviate someone's anger or their concern in one conversation. Again, it's relationships. They take time, right? Um, but, you know, w- within the response, one, it needs to be timely, right? It needs to be quick. It needs to be sincere. And within that, as soon as you can, you need to demonstrate the lessons learned. You need to be able to identify clearly, very articulately, this is what happened. We've seen it. This was a, a maybe a glitch in the system that was missed. Here's what we're going to do going forward to make sure this doesn't happen again, and that drum needs to be beat repeatedly. Now, are some people still going to be mad? Yes, mm-hmm. rightfully. So you know, this summer will mark 10 years ago that that uh, spill occurred in the Kalamazoo River. Are some people still angry? Yes, of course they are. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of people in those communities who. I think appreciate the work that the company did to make it right. Mm -hmm. It's awful that it happened in the first place and it should never have happened. But, you know, you have to be true to your word. You have to make it right, make it as good or better than it was before. And I said, you have to make sure you can articulate what you're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it's hard, you know, I've had so many people red in the face, the veins bulging, I've had people with their finger in my face, poking me in the chest, um, because they're mad at who I work for, um, saying they would never trust a word I say because of who I work for. Um, and it's not just residents, sometimes they're prominent business people in the state, government leaders, and it, it happens. And it's just, it's an emotional issue and, and able to, to handle it properly. You have to have emotional intelligence, that EQ we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Um, You have to be able to handle emotions, and sometimes talking fact isn't the best way to go. Because when someone's emotional about this, they don't care about all your widgets, and they don't care about the 10 things you're doing, um, you know, um, on pipeline safety, for example. They just wanna know you understand what's happened. You understand why they're so upset, and that you are working hard to fix the problem. And so that was a real learning curve for me because honestly, when I took the job, I thought, you know what, if I just keep wowing them with fact, they'll come around. They'll see. That oh, didn't work that way, and that was a sobering <laughs> lesson, you know, for me. When it's an emotional debate, sometimes fact goes right out the window, mm-hmm. you know. So that
0: is interesting. Interesting takeaway. To sort of turn um, a little bit, what is your Favorite thing about your career, and also the biggest challenge.
1: Um, I think the thing I like the most, after all these hardy years, <laughs> <laughs> is that I'm still impacting either people's lives in some way, maybe their their um, education on a particular topic or a particular industry, and I'm helping. Um, make change. Um, you know, when you think about issues, for example, deep issues around the state, water quality, cleanup of a contaminant, um, helping address um, a water crisis on the other side of the state. You know, the things that I'm doing can help make positive change, not only in Lansing with our with our government officials, but within local communities. Um, and that's, I think, what I'm so attracted to yet to this day. Um, now, the challenging part is, really what I've talked about when you're dealing with something that is so emotionally charged for people but also at the same time it is so well known and so important to the state to our economy you know to our to to businesses to people's homes to their livelihood and there's it's high stakes mm-hmm. It's high risk and it's high stakes if there is another spill like we had in the Kalamazoo and if it happened to be in the Straits of Mackinac would be completely devastating. We all know that, right? Um, if, you know, there's another Flint uh, water crisis somewhere, it's devastation, right? If you're permitting from a natural spring source, if it does end up somehow negatively impacting the aquifer, we're talking really deep consequences. And it's not just to the neighbors, it's to everybody around the Great Lakes state. So again, you know, these are things that are well known, highly publicized, high stakes. Mm-hmm and everybody's emotional about them. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. And what public relations trends, I guess, do you see happening in your work? Or if there's someone who's just starting in the crisis communications field, um, what do they sort of need to be prepared to do?
1: Um, be prepared to go gray. <laughs>
2: <Is> <laughs>
1: Very <that> quickly. <laughs> right? Yeah, I agree really. Um, no, but outside of that, really, I think some of the some of the trends you know, that I'm seeing is it really gets to what I've been talking about is emotional intelligence and you know we live in a society today it's not Michigan it's not Allendale I mean it's everywhere across the world we live in a society today that is very politicized and it's polarizing people tend to be on one side of an issue or the other and there is no in-between not only is there no in between but there's no debating an issue anymore either that's really a lost art sadly And so if you and I are sitting in a room and we're debating an issue, and I'm saying debating in air quotes, even though the uh, (laughs) listeners can't see that, um, there really isn't a debate. Because if you don't agree with me, you're wrong and I'm right, naturally, right? Or, you know, I can say other bad things, you're just evil and I'm the good person here. And unfortunately, that's the way it is on so many issues, you know, from Washington, D.C. all the way into West Michigan. And that makes the job, you know, for us in public affairs or public relations really difficult because you are now the spokesperson either for your organization or for your client. And if your stakeholders don't agree with what the company is doing or don't agree with what you're saying, it doesn't matter if it's based on fact or not, you're wrong and they're right or they don't like you. Um, and so in addition to all your technical skills, you know your writing skills, your graphic design skills, all of those things that are so critically important, You know, taking courses like psychology and others that will help deal with emotions, working with the human mind. I never thought in a million years when I was 20 or 21 years old that I'd even be thinking about this, <laughs> but you have to. It's how do you work with people who are highly charged and emotional, and they come from a different perspective, And when you don't agree, sometimes conversation or communication will break down. Those are the kinds of things that I think tomorrow's workforce needs to be thinking about today and working on.
0: Mm -hmm. And if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to yourself at 20 years old?
1: Um, Probably more hair tonic for my (laughs) graying hair. But besides that, um, no, really it would be um, you know, I would take more classes on the like psychology side of things and how, how to work with people. I think I have a, I think I have a natural skill with it. And I think that over the course of 20 years, my career has gotten even better at that. It's kind of forced my hand at that, right? But the better off you are, coming out of the gate into an entry-level job, the more marketable you are that way, the more likely you are to be put in situations where you're dealing with a, quote, unique client or a challenging client or a customer, right? Or, you know, you've got a department head or or a senior executive in your organization difficult to work with. You're going to be more successful. And people you work with will see that. Um, And they will give you more responsibilities at a quicker rate because they know you can handle it. So it's more of the, it's not the hard skill, it's more of the soft skill, but dealing with different walks of life and that emotional intelligence is, I think, only going to be more crucial as time goes on.
0: Awesome. And is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to touch on?
1: You know, I I would just say, you know, no matter which area in PR you go in, because there's so many different areas, Mm -hmm. um, do it with passion. Make sure you like it. It's not all puppy dogs and ice cream. Um, it's not. You know, there are days you come home and you you want to you know bang your head on the on the wall. Um, but never lose sight of why you're in the profession and what gets you excited in the morning to get out of bed and go to work. And know that if you surround yourself with good people, you know, your colleagues, your senior leadership, and you. Um, or in a place where um, you are in full alignment with either the, 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 you know, the mission or their goals, mm-hmm. you're going to have a good career. But don't lose sight of that. Because like I said, every career has ebbs and flows, ups and downs. And when you're in a crisis, there's a lot of, there's a lot of down, <laughs> right? There's not a lot of ups. So it can be easy sometimes to get lost in all the minutiae, right? It's hard to see the forest through the trees, the cliche. <laughs> but just make sure you always go back to that and reassess. Why am I in this career? Why do I like it? And make sure that, again, whoever you work with or whoever you work for shares that same alignment as you. Because where you could get off track, right, is if you decide, I've worked here for several years and this really doesn't align with my philosophy, my my goals. Then, you know, it might be time to move on. But no matter what, you know, just, just keep a stiff upper lip. It's, you know, when people are yelling, it's not personal. Um, And again, just make sure you always, always, always go back to, why do I love this profession? Because it is a great profession to be in. Um, There are just so many different things you can do every single day and throughout the course of your career. Like I said, when you would have asked me this question 20 years ago, I never thought I'd be talking about this and dealing with things that I've had to deal with. It wouldn't have been on my radar at all. I thought I would have been reading some novel, you know, but... (laughs) Um, this is really important to do what you love so hopefully you know for the students who are getting set to graduate like yourself you find something that even if it's not your ideal job or your ideal client you're working with that's okay do it build all the experience you can and as you get experience you'll start to figure out oh, this is what I really like to do and this over here eh, not so much and then once you get that experience under your belt you can really start to carve the career you want with an organization you want to be aligned to and that is so important um, you know for me working for enbridge or for nestle these last 10 years what i really have loved about it is again i got to help them mm-hmm. through issues or crises that hopefully made it better for their stakeholders and at the end of the day if i've done that i've done my job mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Such good advice. Well, thank you for being here today. I appreciate
1: it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much.
0: I hope you've enjoyed listening to PR Hangover. If you'd like, you can give us a follow on Twitter at GV underscore PRSSA, and you can check out our show notes at GVPRSSA.com.